Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Let's go back to a meeting at Island Records in London in early 2008. I wasn't there, of course, but I somehow imagine it went something like this. All right, is that it? Anyone have any other potential new signings they'd like to bring forward? God, this is dire. Is there nothing new out there? You, what's your name? Bloom, sir. Lewis Bloom. Well, Bloom, you've been out draining your expense account to... What did accounting tell me? See this banjo band? Does that mean what I think it does? Yes, sir. They... Play a banjo. Good Lord, Smith. This is 2008. We need the next big alternative band. This industry is melting down, and if we don't have some hits in a hurry... I believe this is our group, sir. Mumford and Sons? Sounds like a bunch of dustbin merchants. Next thing you'll tell me is that they have an accordion player. I know it's unconventional, sir, but they really are very good, and the kids seem to love them. The kids? Loving a banjo band? Yes, sir. And when you think about all the guitar bands we've had over the last 20 years, what's more alternative than a band that plays a banjo? All right, let's give them a chance. But Bloom, if they turn out to be a failure, I'll have your head on a pike. I understand, sir. (laughs) Mumford and Sons. That'll be the day. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Mumford and Sons with I Will Wait, one of their major hits from Babel, their second album. And uh, that's the only song that you'll hear from that record on this show. You'll see what I mean in a second. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and the plan for this program is to look at the earliest and mostly unknown portion of Mumford and Sons' career. Um, super fans, you'll be excused because you're probably aware of this stuff. Or, or well, maybe not. Let's, let's find out. First, you really have to hand it to Lewis Bloom of the A&R department at Island Records in London. He scouted Mumford & Sons shortly after the band was formed in December 2007. He went back to see them again and again until he felt they were ready for a deal. Then he swooped in, convinced his label masters that this was a good idea, and look where we are today. A multi-platinum, Grammy-winning, Brit-winning band that plays the banjo. We begin with Marcus Oliver Johnstone Mumford, who, in case you didn't know, is American by birth. His English parents, John, a former drug-taken hippie turned ordained minister, and Eleanor, a proponent of faith healing, were living in Orange County, California at the time, right in the heart of American punk rock country. They were sent to this heathen area of Southern California to establish a branch of the Vineyard Churches, a pretty serious Christian evangelical organization. Job done, the Mumfords moved back to London six months later. And I should point out that Eleanor Mumford spent some time in Toronto in 1994, following up on a holy laughter movement at a church near Pearson Airport, something that she grew to believe in quite ardently and then exported back to the UK. I'm I'm not making any of this up, by the way. In London, there were stories written about the Mumford's church. Example, this is a quote. The service ended in chaos as dozens of people burst into spontaneous laughter or tears, trembled and shook and fell to the floor. Some dubbed this action of the Holy Spirit the Toronto Blessing. 
and it became a rather big deal for a while. And Eleanor Mumford was very famous in certain religious and psychological circles. I bring this up because it illustrates how serious the entire Mumford family is about God and spirituality. If you remember that, a lot of Mumford and Son songs will have deeper meanings for you. All right, back to young Marcus. As he grew up, Marcus was exposed to the music of Bob Dylan, especially his God Lovin' era, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, and a variety of jazz. When he started playing in a jazz group of his own as a teenager, he met Ben Lovett, who could sing, play keyboards, including the accordion, and the drums. They eventually met up with Winston Marshall, the son of a tremendously successful hedge fund manager that looked after more than a hundred million pounds in assets. He made even more money advising Rupert Murdoch on some of his acquisitions. Winston was sent to a private school where tuition was £30,000 a year. But despite all his money, he insisted on dressing like some kind of Rastafarian hip-hop gangster complete with dreads, which you can imagine went over very well. He also liked bluegrass, especially that Old Brother Where Art Thou album, which gave him and Marcus something to talk about. Marcus, meanwhile, was struggling. The only university that would accept him was up in Edinburgh. The expectation was that he would follow his parents into the ministry. Fortunately, Ben was still into music and had a band called Hot Rocket, and so was Winston. His sort of bluegrass group was called Captain Kick and the Cowboy Ramblers, and it had up to 16 members. They used a guitar, banjo, harmonica, dobro, mandolin, and violin. They covered everyone from the Grateful Dead and Neil Young to Dexy's Midnight Runners, and um, yeah, they, they, they covered some Shania Twain songs. I won't lie. Captain Kick and crew played in a tiny 40-person bar called the Bosun's Locker, which was located below a pastry shop in London. Marcus was so impressed by what he heard and saw that he dropped out of university and vowed to make music his vocation. In early 2006, he was in West London trying to be a singer-songwriter, without much success, really. But he did get to hang out with Ben and Winston and a 15-year-old girl singer named Laura Marling. One of the people playing with her was a guy named Ted Duane, the son of a self-made construction mogul. He also played the banjo, but he actually had a music school diploma in bass performance. Apparently, it was great fun at the Bosun's Locker, but then the place was shut down. That's when Ben launched a new place himself, another small bar called Communion. This place could hold at most 200 people. Ben's band, Hot Rocket, often played there, and in 2007, they released an indie single. And I think this is worth playing because they sound so different than what was to come. It's not for me, don't tell them what I see, don't tell them that I'm feeling valid. I saw you there, I saw everything, I was with you in the back of the room. Hot Rocket, featuring future Mumford & Sons member Ben Lovett. The song is Do 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 from 2007 and can be found on a five-song EP. It actually became something of a sensation in certain indie circles in London. Meanwhile, Marcus, Ted, and Winston had coalesced in a group called Marcus Mumford and His Merry Men. They also played at communion, and every once in a while, Ben would jump up on stage and play with them. By October 2007, Hot Rocket was, uh, well, hot. They had a well-reviewed indie EP and a sold-out UK tour. But Ben was having a better time playing with these other three guys. And then they started recording together 
just to see what would happen. Here's a sample of the kind of thing they did back then. This is from the fall of 2007, and it's called White Blank Page. That's Proto Mumford and Sons from October 2007 and White Blank Page. Now to Ben, this felt a whole lot better than what he was doing with Hot Rocket. So he made a decision. Ditch Hot Rocket, the record deal, and the tour for this new folky thing which had been formed right under his nose in his own club. It was a tough call, but give him credit, he made it. Well, what about a name? There was no question that Marcus was the leader, so it kind of made sense to give him some kind of above-the-line billing. And at the time, there were a number of like-minded bands using the word sons in their name, and at least one that used and daughter. So, it came to pass that Mumford and his merry men became Mumford and Sons. This made this traditional music-loving bunch of guys sound like they could run a family-owned general store or an antique furniture shop, which really appealed to everybody. But now it was time to get serious about recording. A listen to that first EP that no one can seem to find anymore is next. This is a super deep look at the early years of Mumford & Sons, the part of their career that not enough people know about. We're up to 2008 now and the band's first EP, which came after a never-ending series of live gigs that attracted the attention of one Adam Tudhope, who agreed to be the band's manager. By early July of 2008, they were selling out shows in decent-sized places based on word of mouth alone. The first EP is either self-titled or called Lend Me Your Eyes. Both are completely acceptable. And it was issued by a boutique label out of London called Chess Club. It was released on 10-inch vinyl in very limited quantities, maybe 500 copies. It was recorded in a basement studio built underneath a factory that made dog biscuits. No wonder the studio was called House of Strange. Let's give a listen to something. This is called Liar. Mumford & Sons with Liar from that ultra-rare vinyl copy of their four-track debut EP, released July 7, 2008, the same date as their first big-time sold-out London gig. Like I said, you can either refer to this EP as self-titled or Lend Me Your Eyes. I have no idea why, but Mumford & Sons fans will accept both. More gigs followed, and then another EP. And while the first one was thrown together rather quickly as a way to sell something at gigs, they had a little more time to work on the second release. No Dog Biscuit Factory this time. Chess Club let them make the Love Your Ground record at the country mansion owned by Ben's parents. Among the four listed tracks and one hidden song on this 10-inch record was this one. It's called Feel the Tide. More early Mumford & Sons, this time from the Love Your Ground EP, released as a 10-inch vinyl record on November 3rd, 2008. Again, just 500 copies, so if you can't find one now, that's why. There was plenty of touring through the winter of 2008-2009. Crowds got bigger, 
the band's crew got bigger, and demand for more recorded product got bigger. This leads us to Mumford's third indie EP, also a 10-inch, also on vinyl, also on chess club, and even in more limited quantities. Only 300 copies of The Cave and the Open Sea were pressed up. And the first 100 were not only numbered, but signed by every member of the group. So you can understand why one of those records are something of a holy grail to Mumford superfans. There were only two songs on this EP, both on side one. Side two features some artwork etched right into the vinyl, so there's nothing to play there. Side one included a crowd favorite called The Cave, and a song that appeared on the last EP called Hold On To What You Believe. Hold on to what you believe from Mumford & Sons. That recording was taken from their The Cave and the Open Sea EP, released on April 6th, 2009. It can also be found on their Love Your Ground EP from the fall of 2008. This is about when Louis Bloom, remember him? This is when he really starts to enter the picture. He was a scout for Island Records and had heard about Mumford & Sons, but after seeing them a couple of times, he thought they weren't quite ready for a record deal. He was willing to risk waiting until the band had a strong body of songs and enough confidence on stage to hold an audience of several thousand for an entire show. The thing that really did it for him, though, was manager Adam Tuthope's ambition. Even before the band had been signed to any label, he had somehow managed to get a promise from producer Marcus Draves to produce Mumford's debut album. Now, if that name rings a bell, it's because by this time, this is early 2009, Marcus had already worked on two Coldplay albums, one by Bjork and Neon Bible by Arcade Fire. And at the time, he was involved in the production of Arcade Fire's The Suburbs, too. So Lewis made Adam a deal. Go ahead with the Marcus Drave sessions. If the results are good, then Island will consider offering you a deal. Oh, uh, the band will have to finance things themselves. We, we can't advance you any money. Well, and you would have to create your own indie label and all the infrastructure to support it. The total for everything will be about 20,000 pounds, and it'll be, you know, all your money. No pressure, right? We'll look at how things turned out next. We're working on a show called Mumford & Sons The Early Years, which is, just like it sounds, the era before they became worldwide superstars. Mumford & Sons went into East Coast Studios with Marcus Draves, a producer they just idolized. They had a month to write and record an album that would either make or break their career, and they had to pay for the whole thing themselves. The first thing they did was create a record label, a business entity, so they could go forward on, uh, well, a, a business level. They called the company Gentlemen of the Road, taking it from the title of a 2007 novel by Michael Chabon. At least that was done. Let's not lose sight of what we're dealing with here. An English folk band who played accordions and banjos and ukuleles, fighting against a sea of more normal alt-rock bands, along with pop stars like Beyonce and Katy Perry and Justin Bieber. Where the hell did a band like Mumford & Sons fit within this equation? Well, I'll tell you where. Exactly nowhere. Put it in context. What Mumford was offering the world in 2009 was a million miles away from what anyone else was offering. And to make things even weirder, Marcus was having a crisis of faith. How could he reconcile this growing pull of the rock and roll world 
with his parents' evangelical zeal for Christianity. It was tough, very tough. Well, at least they had some older material that they could revisit. Couldn't they just use the best of their older stuff on, on this album? Well, sure, they could. Draves had them take another look at a song called Little Lion Man, which had originally appeared on the Love Your Ground EP, and he said, eh, it's not bad. Let's re-record that. So they did. But it was not your fault but mine And it was your heart on the line I really it up this time Didn't I, my dear the more familiar version of Little Lion Man, the re-recording from the debut album of Mumford & Sons, which would eventually be called Sigh No More. The song seems to have been inspired by Alexander Hamilton, one of the American founding fathers and the guy we see on the U.S. $20 bill. He was known as the Little Lion of the American Revolution. Did not mess with this guy, even though he was gay and homosexuality back then was a crime. But ask Marcus about what the song means, and he won't say other than its genesis is rooted in a very personal story, a situation in his life that he's not very proud of. There's some information, so feel free to speculate wildly. They almost left that song off the record, too, but Winston insisted that it be there. Let's talk about that album title. If you know your Shakespeare, you may know that the phrase, Sigh No More, is taken from a song performed by Balthazar in Much Ado About Nothing. He sings, Sigh no more, ladies, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. If we want to dig into the title track of the album, we can draw all kinds of conclusions about what Marcus Mumford is trying to say. Without going into too much detail, he's trying to tell us that he's getting back into the religion and spiritual relationships he grew up with and yet keeps failing. There's a lot of much ado about nothing on Sino More, including some lines and phrases lifted directly from the 1623 text. But since Shakespeare isn't around to sue, there's probably no problem with that. And it's not just Shakespeare either. Marcus alludes to various passages in the Bible, the Odyssey by Homer, a biography of St. Francis of Assisi, the teachings of Socrates, both the Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden from John Steinbeck, and let me tell you something, if you want to get deep with this album, you really can. Island Records loved what they heard. The gamble paid off. Island then negotiated a deal whereby they licensed the album from Mumford through their Gentlemen of the Road indie label. Island agreed to cover all the costs associated with manufacturing, distributing, and promoting the music. All Mumford would get would be the licensing fee and not any subsequent profits. Now, that does sound pretty usurious, but it required no upfront money from the band, nor were they on the hook for anything if anything failed. At this point, it was the safest way forward, and it turned out to be the right deal at the time. Little Lion Man became the first single, released on August 11, 2009. Chart-wise, it didn't really make that great of an impact, but since then, it sold more than 3 million digital copies, just this one song. Not bad. The second single from Sign No More was Winter Winds. It came out on December 6th of 2009, and when it showed up that week, it hit 250,000 views in about 12 hours on YouTube, and that broke the previous record set by Lady Gaga by more than 25%. You'll be high. 
Winter Winds from Mumford & Sons, the second of four singles from that debut record. The third single from the album was The Cave. That came out on February 26, 2010. More religious references and imagery. And it was also good for four Grammy nominations. Single number three from Sign No More, Mumford & Sons and The Cave. Let's talk about the album cover. It's a pretty simple shot. It's all four members of the band in the window of a shop at 596 The King's Road in the Fulham area of London. The place is called Pimpernel & Partners. It's a shop that specializes in 19th century furniture. Remember how we talked about the name Mumford & Sons being reminiscent of a family that ran an antique furniture store? So there you go. And it wasn't a simple photo to take. The photographer's name was Max Knight, a guy who uh, coincidentally has a photo book called Cats in Windows, which is just like it sounds. The photo for the album was shot in the summer of 2009. It was a very, very hot day and the band arrived late. Getting the right shot took hours. It's a very busy street too, so they had to wait until Max had a clear shot. No cars, no pedestrians, no cats. As the sun moved across the sky, it kicked up some weird window reflections that ruined everything. And to top it off, there was a pub next door filled with people watching Wimbledon and getting very, very drunk. So, it took close to eight hours to get that one simple picture. Oh, and if you visit that place, um, just be aware that the proprietors don't like to talk about the photo that much, saying it's not relevant to our business. Sign No More was released on October 2nd, 2009. It was a massive hit, selling over a million copies at home in the UK and more than 2 million in the US. It reached number 2 on the Canadian charts, selling somewhere around 200,000 copies. Worldwide sales are somewhere north of 6 million. Now they've sold well over 10 million albums and have a ton of awards and major festival appearances to their credit. Which is not bad for a group that started out as a weird banjo band, huh? So there's our look at the early years of Mumford & Sons. Hope you like all the rare stuff that I was able to dig up from the past. If you have any suggestions for future shows or any additions or comments about programs you've already heard, have at it. I can be reached at alan at alancross.ca or through my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. And trust me, I read everything and I respond to everything. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.